0: Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. In keeping with the style of Napoleon month, where we've started to mix things up a little bit, I'm going to bring you a new feature, what I hope will be the first of a series of running features on The Napoleon Assist. I am joined by the brilliant Josh Proven. Hello, Josh. Hi, that's very generous of you. Uh, Josh, as some of you will know if you've listened to the Napoleon's Greatest Battle Part 1 episode, runs the brilliant YouTube channel Adventures in Historyland and is a general genius and kind of walking encyclopedia in a good way of all things Napoleonic and military history related. And the idea for this one is that we're going to focus very specifically on Napoleon's marshals. Now I'm very, very conscious that Epic History TV is doing something themselves on Napoleon's Marshals, And this is in no way intended to step on the brilliant work that, uh, that is being done there. We're going to run two episodes today. Well, today and, and uh, across the course of this week, uh, looking very specifically at Napoleon's Marshals who served in Spain. And then having looked at seven individuals in particular, we will then start to look at other individuals who, who were involved in other campaigns and work out from there. Um, so the idea for this one is that it will be split into two parts. We're going to look today at Salt Victor, Massena and Ney. And then in the second part, we will look at Marmont, Jourdan and Suchet. So we might as well just plunge straight in. Well, actually, no, before we plunge straight in, let's talk about the concept of the Marshalsea Sea, first of all. Brought in in 1804, designed to provide the ultimate reward to Napoleon's most capable, but also most loyal subordinates. And I, I always feel that this is one of those points where it's very, very hard to fault Napoleon. With the Legion d'Honneur, you can always make that criticism that it went to predominantly military individuals. The whole point of the Marshalsea was it was meant to go to military individuals. And this is the ultimate indication, for me at least, that. Napoleon was inclined in the right circumstances to distribute honours according to ability. And in that sense that was a continuation of the revolution.
1: Yes, I think that's definitely fair to say the Marshalsea was a definite I mean yes, overall it was definitely a merit a merit-based, system um of course it, it is uh i suppose to be cynical you would say it was defined by napoleon's notions of merit i guess but um nevertheless that is merit in itself because as i have i am willing to uh, always um admit he was an excellent soldier um and he knew he, he could see talent he could see talent and that talent is represented most strongly in certainly the first first tier or class of marshals that were formed in 1804, um, and uh, it's there that you get some of his most legendary um, subordinates. And uh, yes, this this idea that this idea that this egalitarian idea of if you're good enough you can you can have a bash on. Um, is definitely uh, at its core a republican sentiment, especially when you consider the rest of Europe at the time. Although, as I think, as I think we'll see, what's interesting is that the majority of the Marshals, um, certainly the ones who served in Spain, will, will all owe something to the old Ancien Régime army that they began their military careers in. Yeah, that's very true. The, these
0: individuals have. Quite a long career and it will be interesting for us to kind of have a think about to what extent did Napoleon send his best marshals into Spain or did he actually kind of save them for, for other operations elsewhere but that they are a mixed bag as as we're going to look at I mean some of them we're going to start with salt in just a moment but others Massena, for example a bit of a scoundrel really. Um, In many respects, both in terms of his love life and his kind of light-fingered attitude towards Mm -hmm. other people's property. Um, So there there isn't a kind of a single personality that fits the bill here.
1: No, there is no such thing as a typical marshal. The most you could say that would brand a typical marshal of, say, the 1804 uh, class would be that they were originally sergeants and lieutenants in the royalist army, generally low born or like gentry, the British might call it, low gentry or something like that, yeoman. Um, And they, a lot of them would have absolutely no problem with deferring to his imperial title because of where they came from.
0: Yeah, I think that is definitely true. I mean, there's nobody, amongst those marshals who strikes me as being questionable in terms of their loyalty. I mean, the very fact that he's handing out marshal batons is, is in itself a way of securing their loyalty, if it was ever in doubt. But these are people who, yes, OK, further down the line, they may have turned their back on Napoleon at various stages in their career, whether it's Marmont in 1804, whether it's a number of them who reconcile with the, the Bourbons and then return uh, to Napoleon or decide not to return to Napoleon. Uh, in 1815 during the Hundred Days. So loyalty further down the line is another matter but at at the point at which they become a Marshal there's none who spring to mind who have that kind of questions over whether or not they would absolutely follow Napoleon to hell and back as many of them did in Russia.
1: Indeed and Spain actually because Russia and Spain are the are the the purgatory and hell of Napoleon's empire.
0: (laughs) Yes. Think spain's probably more purgatory uh, i think it is yeah. <laughs> most definitely hell <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's start with salt then uh okay often touted as one of the best commanders in spain possibly one of napoleon's best marshals but there are a few who would fight fight it out quite reasonably for that title and as you said this is a guy of humbler origins son of a baker Joined the army at sixteen, but then rose very rapidly, in part thanks to the revolution. Because within six, six years, he was an officer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another common trait we'll see is that is a re- really quite fast, extremely fast in some cases, rise through the ranks. Um, Sult. What's interesting about Sult is he's he's actually this he's he's, he's this sort of pervasive, if, if that's the right word. Um, uh, influence across Napoleon's life you know he's he's actually in a lot of places and he suffered like many of the Spanish Spanish Marshals he suffers a lot from having to constantly face Wellington and there's that quote that Wellington said about him Uh, which uh, we can bring up later of course which which suggests that he wasn't terribly good but what's funny is that it's mostly British people who think that Soult wasn't good just because of his um he 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 dogged Wellington for so long or was in Spain for so long and therefore obviously must have been bad or something like that but actually I don't think that's the case um like you say he was he was the son of a baker and he didn't want to be the village baker so he joined the army in uh, 1785. He was born in 1769 uh, so roughly the same age as Napoleon and Wellington and um, he again he was a general by 1799 Um, as general de division I think by 1799 not not general de brigade Um, and then he was uh, and then he doesn't have a lot of independent command so to speak he works under Massena in italy and and stuff like that yeah he, he i when i was researching him he he has actually one of the, he has one of the, he was he was one of the most experienced marshals in 1804 probably one of the most capable
0: yeah i definitely agree with that i mean he's he's there almost the whole way through the, the big events of the French Revolutionary Ar- Army, isn't he? I mean, particularly for Fleurus is where he gets that, sorry, 1794 is where he gets the promotion to General of Brigade. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, who is it who took the Prats and Heights? It's salt, you know, it not, not, of... not, not a mean feat, but also a demonstration of the trust that Napoleon had in his ability. Exactly. Um, and I, I agree with you actually, when it comes to his peninsula reputation. I think of all of them, perhaps with the exception of Marmont, who we'll discuss in in the second part, um, I think Salt's one of the ones who came closest to humbugging Wellington, as he would say. I mean, yes, okay, you've got the fact that he's surprised at a Porto. To what extent is that an intelligence breakdown? Well, we could discuss that uh, at some length. Um, And yes, that, that was quite disastrous, but you've got to think about where else he is. I mean, this is the guy who chased more to Carinha. Um, Okay, he didn't win at Carinha, Um, but again, the demonstration that of all the people that Napoleon could have chosen, he chooses salt to kick the British into the sea, and fundamentally, he keeps that pressure on well enough that, okay, a, a different result at Corunia probably wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference. Um, the British were always going to evacuate, whatever the outcome. Um, but I, I, I particularly look at the Pyrenees campaign and think he came so close, so darn yes.
1: close. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely true. But he was able in 1813-14 to put any defense together after um, the French had been so badly hammered from 1812 uh, to Victoria is um is uh, is extraordinary actually and to to attack and actually get the drop on wellington um this is after obviously after he again did a creditable job of chasing him to to uh, the portuguese border uh, after burgos um this is guy not to be messed around with tactically maybe wellington was right uh, when he said that he knows how to get his troops to a battlefield but not doesn't know what to do with them when he, when they, when he, when he gets them there. That's probably fair. Maybe a bit too unkind, but um, fair enough, I think, because strategically still was never anything but capable except at Porto, as he said, which we must admit was, that was actually really quite bad. But um, generally speaking, you wouldn't want you had to you had to be on the ball against Sult, and like you say, he came really close in the Pyrenees to actually dri- driving Bunnington back again.
0: I mean, the other one that strikes me
1: from Spain is the fact
0: that he's the one against Beresford at Albuera. Yes. See, this is th- the thing. I can't decide whether or not that reflects well on him as a commander because Beresford made such a hash of the early phase um, (laughs) and that redeployment, surely uh, in my heart I want to kind of say well look he had the better of Beresford but I kind of feel that Beresford made such significant mistakes there that if ever there was a chance to really kick the the Anglo-Portuguese army that was it and he couldn't quite catalyze and In in one sense, yes, that's because of the the doggedness of the resistance of the forces under Beresford. Of all nations, uh, yes, okay, there's controversy over the Spanish, but enough of all nations stood and fought for long enough to allow other troops to move up and and alter the situation. I'm just not entirely sure whether Albera really
1: reflects well on him. Like, yeah, no, neither do I. Because theoretically speaking, this may be this may be the truth of Wellington's comment about him. Because tactically speaking, I think most of the I think Massena would have completely crushed Beresford if he got the drop on him like that. It was basically Fuentes de Onoro, um, but without uh, but without Wellington taking control of the situation at Albura. As far as I've ever read. Like you say, it's literally down to the brigades on the right flank standing and dying um, to stop the, stop the French just rolling up the entire flank. That includes, um, I think it's Zayas's, Spaniards', and uh, obviously Colborne's brigade. And what it comes down to is less Beresford's generalship, although his handling of the reserves to the proper place was obviously stellar. Um, but that's more to the, to the stolidity of Line V's column than um, than actually anything the anything Beresford did. And it was basically suits to lose and he lost it. So, yeah, it's not actually his finest hour. As he said, he complained himself about the the Allied infantry. They were completely beaten, but didn't know it and wouldn't run. So that he couldn't find the way to beat beat them. Even even when he had cavalry running around in the middle of them. I don't actually I forget what the details are I mean how how does one Lose that advantage when you've actually routed a whole brigade and you have that many men Ready and waiting to surely take advantage of it. It's 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 baffling actually
0: It Um, it genuinely is Um, (laughs) I I can't make head or tail of it. I really can't Um, and I think a lot comes down to actually the individuals on the ground at the time mm. and and as you say his comment about you know these men were beaten they just weren't <laughs> prepared to accept that fact <laughs> yeah. and they just kept on fighting you know it always has that kind of python-esque air about the, yeah. the guy with uh the, the arm getting graphic ah oh, it's a flesh wound sort of yeah. thing you can just imagine them going cavalry to the left cavalry to the right infantry over there it's fine we can handle this you know what i mean <laughs> Um, if we run,
1: we're all going to die anyway, so. <laughs>
0: this, yeah, true. <laughs> so it's, die
1: hard. Yeah, and and indeed they did. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, but it's, it's still record in Spain is very long, actually. It's probably, it's, it's the longest except for Suchet's, I think, 1808-1804 bar one year. Um, I don't think he was in 1813. Um, no, I he wasn't. He, he went... was at Bautzen in 1813, yeah. wasn't he? Um and, and then,
0: of course, was rushed back after the disaster of Vittoria, which again, I think, says a lot about Napoleon perhaps suddenly waking up to the dangers in the Iberian Peninsula because the situation transforms so radically. And that's not, cool. to, um, for once, I'm not disp- being disparaging of Napoleon and saying, you know, he was completely oblivious. He was obviously getting the reports. He was sending feedback on to um his his marshals and commanders on the ground in some respects that was actually part of the problem out in spain in that you have each of these individuals kind of pursuing their own agendas and then you've got napoleon on high kind of interfering and sort of attempting to provide unity but not really achieving it because he's not Mm -hmm. there on the ground able to make those snap decisions by the time the dispatches go from let's say lisbon where musena's camped um over the the winter of 1810-11 Paris and then back again, plenty can have changed. Um, So I'm not entirely sure to what extent all of the failings of the the individuals that we're going to talk to are solely down to their individual attributes and to what extent Uh there's an issue in the command structure here. It also doesn't help that you've got Joseph in the mix, but to send salt back in later 1813, I think says a lot about Napoleon's regard for him.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely the case. And as, we've, as we said, he did everything he could. He threw everything at that campaign. And it's just that he was against Wellington, really, but, um, that, it, that it didn't work out. Um, because. And then, of course, when he was under the, the defensive, French morale was completely rock bottom. And there was nothing going to stop them. It not uh, Wellington's army at that point, um, not with not with the army he had left. So, um, yeah. Uh, carry on. Were you going to say something?
0: Yeah, and yet Napoleon, sorry, Wellington takes a bloody nose at Toulouse. In effect, loses. Um, well, yes,
1: yes, this is true. This is true. Yes, I was, I was just thinking about the um, the Sororan, um bit. But yes, to lose as well. That, that is Wellington attacking and putting up a Wellingtonian defense um, where he checks the attacks at every point. There is debate that he had he was basically lost by the end of the day, and if it had continued the next day, Wellington would have beaten him properly, but he then got out, which again is a very Wellington thing to do. Um, so. Yeah, yeah he, it is. he he was he was getting somewhere against Wellington. We'll put it that way. I think he was gaining some idea of how to fight the British properly, and his long stretch of service against them makes him actually one of the best generals to fight the British in Spain. And uh, maybe that's why maybe that's why Napoleon sent him back. I mean,
0: it strikes me that Napoleon is said to have. Um, said that if you fight your enemy too often he learns your way of waging war Mm. and I sort of wonder building on what you're saying there whether that's what happens with Salt and Wellington that actually there's yes they know each other but Salt's starting to learn how to how to how do you fight this guy how do you keep him just at arm's length or how do you just get that edge which is never quite enough admittedly Um, but yeah as you say Toulouse bloody stalemate,
1: really. Yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating one, if you are an admirer like uh, we are of Wellington, to look at, to, to wonder, what's, what's going on here, old boy? Because you're not being as solid as you usually are. I mean, I get the impression, Wellington was very prone to dropping into what I call India mode, where he feels that if he's got the enemy running, they'll keep running. So that happened at Burgos, where he just charged off from Madrid, not prepared for a proper siege he just thought he'd snap up a few more cities before the end of the campaigning season and paid the price for it but that was what he would do in India where he would chase and he could usually pull off stuff his old offensive nature his old audacious nature trips him up now and again and possibly that's what happened at Toulouse and Soult was able to take advantage of that.
0: You know it's interesting that you bring us back to Burgos because this was another thing that I was thinking of as you were talking that actually it's quite surprising how rapidly these French armies are able to rally, take Salamanca. Okay, Clauzel, not a marshal in command, but I always have huge respect for Clauzel's ability to, almost on a on a sixpence, just turn the army around, rebuild it. And it caught Wellington by surprise. He was stagging yeah. how quickly um, yeah. this, it was a broken force after Salamanca, every single uh, division in the end, if you include García Hernández, took a mauling at, at some point over the 22nd and 23rd of July, and yet still he's able to, to rearm it, turn it around, stabilise its morale, and then take it back on the offensive. Yes, okay, he's got other generals across Spain moving in to support him.
1: Yeah, that's, that's um, one of the fascinating things about the French army of the revolutionary and Napoleonic it was, is how quickly it can just how flexible the thing is, um, how easy it almost is to cobble it back together from with shoestrings almost, um, and that's what makes it such a tough force for any conventional European army to take on because it is just so hard to destroy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even Russia. All right. Yeah. Okay. Forty-three thousand men odd came out of it as a formed body-ish. That's the guard, basically. Um, but um, eighteen thirteen, it's back and <laughs> still fighting, capable yeah. of winning battles. It's ridiculous, and with no cavalry, ba- practically, no no decent cavalry on. So yeah, I think this is. It just it's just so hard to kill the French army that was born out of the. the the revolution it it absolutely is we should also talk about the career post
0: spain Mm. Um, which is fascinating pursuit actually as well it it really is waterloo um do you know i i I, i'm coming across as a a salt sympathizer which i kind of wasn't expecting at the start of this but i don't blame him (laughs) for waterloo because he's not the man for the job yes okay bertier wasn't available and I, I was speaking to Will Fletcher about this recently, who, who has kind of bottomless knowledge on the workings of staffs. And he makes the point that actually Salt didn't, because Bertier had dominated for so long, nobody really could have stepped into those shoes. Oh. Berthier knew how to translate Napoleon's thoughts into orders that were understandable. And Salt had to kind of hit the ground running and, and keep up. He hadn't had the opportunity to prepare for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's completely the case. Um, the, you know, the followers of the cult Napoleon uh, loved to follow Napoleon's um, lead on blaming Ney, and Grouchy for the defeat at Waterloo. Okay, yeah, you can accord some blame to each of them for certain things, but the majority of it actually does go to Napoleon because he chose them for these tasks. Now, it's true. Soot was actually a capable staff officer. He could, he did have the capability to run an efficient staff, but to run Napoleon's staff is a thing again. It's another creature. Napoleon, although he was obviously schooled at Angers and things like that, this completely original military brain practically. Everything, kind of like the point I made in the podcast at Rivoli, everything practically he knew about war, he decided was... Some sort of organic creation that was birthed out of the first Italian campaign. I think he said something actually to the effect that I fought sixty battles or something and know nothing that I didn't know in the first one or something. And so he didn't have he didn't act he didn't act with his staff like other generals would. Um, and it's it's infamous that uh, only Berthier was able to properly formalize what the, the, the babble that was coming out of his mouth practically um to make it into understandable orders. so yeah this is completely the case it's it's probably i I've, I've read opinions by other by other like historians and experts and things saying that still probably should have had ney's an job and Nay, maybe should have had gruty's job or something like that or ney should have just been a, a, a corps commander or something like that and that i've read that you know the chaps who went with him to um saint Helena, mm-hmm. uh montalon and um i've forgotten the name of the other guy but the master of the household and stuff uh someone read someone wrote that they were the only ones who worked with him cl- Napoleon, close enough to probably be able to do berthier's job at waterloo and um, Soult didn't <laughs> didn't really stand a chance really uh, on being able to to do Phil Berthier's shoes, I don't think. Um, it is you do feel quite a bit of sympathy for him in this. And he's, he is, he remains he, he remains blamed for more to do and defeated Napoleon and uh, and his, yes. and then and, and his and he and his sort of um, he as we were saying as you we were saying at the beginning, he's one of the ones who somewhat switches coats. You know, he was quite happy to serve the Bourbons when they came back, quite happy to return to Napoleon when he came back, equally happily to make friends again with the Bourbons. Um, well, he was Minister Richard. of War, wasn't he? He was yes, and there's actually he actually became the grand old man of the French army because he was one of the longest-lived marshals, and he 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 he, he, he was named Marshal General um, in the 1840s, I think, which only Turenne, Condé, and De Saxe had been given this title before, um, and of course he, he wasn't really in their league, but he was like the greatest soldier left surviving, um, um, except for Marmont, I think, and nobody really wanted to talk to him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk to Marmont No, no. Um,
1: and he, uh, there's a. He was a quick. lived to, to like 1851. And he was at Queen Victoria's um, coronation. Uh, apparently, he saw the Duke of Wellington there. Snuck up behind him, put his, grabbed his shoulder, and said, "Aha, I have you at last." And um, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, ruined overall reputation because of Waterloo and Napoleon. Yeah. You know,
0: I, I think we have a consensus here, don't we? Yeah. Which is sort treated quite harshly, um, mm-hmm. perhaps too harshly by, uh, by armchair generals such as ourselves for the most part. Um, and, and perhaps there's a, a, a strong argument to be made for a, a kinder interpretation of the guy. I think so. I think so. I mean, he was, for he was.
1: To I think so he was he was he was he was a capable man he was a bit pompous he he briefly wanted to become king of portugal or something like that and uh was miffed because Murat got king of naples and thought he was an idiot so he thought he should be able to be king of portugal and he was a, an inveterate looter as well um a lot of the stuff he took from spain is still in France. but yes i think generally speaking uh, as a soldier i think um, I think we agree on this point that there's more to be said about Soult than just his performance against Wellington, and his supposed ineptitude at Waterloo. Absolutely.
0: Let's move on to perhaps somebody who doesn't get as much limelight in discussions about the the Peninsular Wars, which is Claude Victor, the Duke de Berlin, um, was an artilleryman at Toulon, so quite obviously had a very long association with Napoleon off of the back of that. Like Napoleon and like sought before him, rose very rapidly. He was a general of brigade at the age of 27, uh, so younger than than I am, even with my whole kind of baby-faced yeah. thing going on. Uh, by 33, 60s later, he's a general of division. So one of these people who very quickly finds his way up the ranks and was with Napoleon as one of his chief subordinates at Marengo. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah he's he's an interesting one because he is not of the of the class of 1804 and he's older than most of the marshals actually because he was born in 1764 I think and like like you say he had a long association with Napoleon he was made he was made general division by Napoleon himself three days after the Battle of Rivoli. And, um, but again, a little like still before he became a marshal. And in fact, actually, uh, Claude Victor Perrin, as his full name was Victor as everyone calls him for some reason, actually he called himself Victor. That's why, um, but um, it's like, because of, he became a marshal in 1807. So in terms of independent command, Spain was his first big shot. And there are a couple of marshals for whom Spain, they had perfectly fine careers as kind of subordinate commanders up to Spain. And Spain was their chance to shine and get his title, basically. I mean, one of the things we didn't say about Sult was that thing about he was a Duke of Dalmatia, but he should have been Duke of um, Asturias. Uh, and you know that thing about the British calling him the Duke of Damnation because of the Corunia campaign. But this is the sort of thing we're talking about. Napoleon would give titles to people once they'd done something clever um, in various parts of the country, and this was his chance to get, like, I don't know, Duke of Talavera or whatever, because that was his first that was his first battle against Wellington. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, but he did okay against the Spanish um the spanish forces he had pretty unbroken successes against the spanish armies yeah and... espinoza Medellin mm-hmm. um yeah. did
0: very well i mean it's interesting what you say about how he's not one of the 1804 class it was something else that occurred to me because he gets it at friedland doesn't he mm. yeah um so why not one of the 1804 class in your opinion
1: I I don't have an answer for that, to be honest. Napoleon's selection of marshals is actually quite mysterious. Um, all I could kind of come up with when I was looking at the sort of the Spanish marshals, anyway, was that they're like I said at the beginning, they're all they're all quite brilliant people who are able to rise through the ranks of some in some way or another. They're all so they're all intelligent. They're all fairly low born. Majority of them lower born than Napoleon, so they wouldn't have any problem with sort of deferring to him, and all of them, and all of them, obviously were. I think I think those are the two main things that typify a marshal, and but why? And Victor, Victor had done a lot of small stuff, but. Although he knew Napoleon for quite a long time, he didn't seem to be on the radar for some reason until, until Friedland. Um, he was a brigade commander under Messina, for instance. So he was a, a brigade commander under a much more brilliant general. So perhaps he was a little covered in terms of, uh, in terms of distinction. But there were a couple of people who were miffed. They didn't get the 1804 battle. Um, Victor isn't particularly one of them who was miffed about it. He was actually kind of a, I don't know, a mild chap, I guess. Um, not, a, not, not someone who stirred the pot very much. He was, he was known for his good looks and general competence. Um, and like I say, Spain was his first big break. Um, it was going quite well. Until 1808. And to be honest, even Tanivera, he did his best. He got the drop on Wellington to be and this and Cuesta to be on the first days for certain. Um, but then it kind of kind of unraveled. And of course it's, then it was Barossa.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean it strikes me that Again, I wasn't expecting to be quite so sympathetic when I first kind of thought about these individuals, but the more I've kind of dwelt on it, the more I'm... I kind of feel that Victor was doing the right things at Talavera and indeed at Barossa initially. The plan was the right one, when you look at what they knew of Wellington and what they knew of the Spanish at that point in time. Um, Okay, Wellington's not at Barossa, we'll get to that in a moment. But Talavera, night assault, really audacious but striking whilst the iron is hot knowing that the spanish have are a weakened force and therefore wellington's put them in the in in the most secure part of the line but kind of rattling their cage a little bit with the that just farcical incident where a whole battalion (laughs) fires on um, advancing French cavalry, and they so scared by the same gunfire that <laughs> it rounds and runs away to the town, pillages its way through the town,
1: and
0: then kind of careers into the light
1: division, uh, yeah, which is, I think, is trying to yeah, reach the battle. Yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's uh, so far Yeah. I mean, Quest was so angry. He wanted to, like, shoot every officer and <laughs> Wellington had to stop him. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Wellington was the one who stepped in and said, no, that that might not necessarily be a good idea to just start executing your officers. But yeah. he, he does the right thing, goes for the high ground. Yes, again, it's a very basic tactic, but goes for the high ground, takes the hill, up, nearly manages it. Yes, is, is pushed back, um, eventually in that very confused fighting. Mm. Um, but there's no reason at that moment in time why you wouldn't think yeah. to take the the fight to to Wellington and to Cuesta. Um, this isn't, you know, sort of Marmont in, in 1811, 1812, having seen a certain story play out that Wellington's very good at holding a ridge and you don't want to fight him on ground of his choosing. They don't have that precedent. Yes, OK, there's been Relisa, there's been Vimero, but that's not... Enough, not enough to kind of it's prove the rule is it and the most no. recent engagement has been Oporto where Wellington's gone on the offensive so that there isn't that kind of reputation of a defensive general erroneous though it was to have been formed.
1: Not, no indeed yes it, it's a good point. Uh, Rolito he attacked, uh, Vimiero he defended but was actually attacking strategically, Oporto all attack. Now the French had no reason to think that this guy was anything other than, uh, and he was invading Spain as well, seeking a battle. So as far as they were concerned, they had checked him. He should have been reeling, and they were going to, uh, like you say, strike while the iron was hot. And obviously, the performance of the Spanish the day before gave them no reason to, and the British, to be honest, um, gave them no reason to think that they weren't, didn't have a, a card to play here. So... So yeah, it was perfectly reasonable to try and actually take that bridge by force. Um, the incident with the Spanish actually being a teachable moment to all of those who feel that uh, um, unsteady troops should fire at cavalry uh, at any range. Once you unload those muskets, and that's what brightened them, they were absolutely vulnerable to being charged. And so they panicked and fled. That's bad, obviously regimental control, but you know, to a French army, very very um, professional French army by 1809, led by a solid chap like Victor. I think Jordan showed up as well, didn't he?
0: I can't remember off the top of my head. I believe... Because there are three of them out there. There's Joseph, yeah, there's, there's Victor.
1: I think you're if, right. I think Jourdan yeah, is there. If Joseph shows up, Jordan's probably there too because he was chief of staff or something like that. And But Victor had, I think, tactical command. And... Yeah, there's no like, yeah, that's a good point. Talivera was fought with every expectation. You can't fault the idea, basically, and it just that was a bruising awakening. To uh...
0: so let's talk about Barroso then, because again, I kind of feel that the the sentiment was right. You've got the British and Spanish force they haven't gone on the offensive as was expected, they're quite clearly at that stage making a a break for the safety of Cadiz, having essentially walked pointlessly across the peninsula and wasted provisions in the process.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I mean there's fault on on many sides here because the Spanish famously don't move to support the, the British and so the Brits are kind of left on their own and so there is an argument to be made that actually had the Spanish moved, perhaps this might not have played out quite so well, but I kind of feel that the idea was good. You know, the, the British have their back more or less to the sea. If ever there was a moment to really kind of give them a hammer, they've got nowhere to go. It, it was a good concept, it, it feels to me. I, what, what's your take on it?
1: Uh, well, Barras is obviously one of the more little known battles, even though it's the first battle in which an eagle, eagle was taken in combat. And, um, it's it was a, a British ta- British attacking actually wasn't it and yeah I mean again it's a solid Victor is and just, just completely solid in his, uh, um, his his appreciation of the of the tactical and strategic situation um, I guess I guess he just cut is consistent it seems like he's consistently underestimating the strength of the British infantry. I guess by 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 the by the standards that he would have been aware of, even though he fought the Russians at Friedland and they had very very tough infantry, um, he just he, yeah he just seems to make he makes he makes solid calls, but but in the circumstances they're the wrong calls because the the British army is is really quite a tough thing in that period and is able to do things in a linear fashion that other armies don't do and so in that in that situation you don't you just don't want to be attacked by them and he allowed them to get the initiative and attack him even though on paper he should have actually been able to deal with it so again I don't think any egregious mis- mistake... Um, was made at Barras he just lost, basically, because Graham managed to take the take the initiative. It's an odd one, isn't it? Because
0: it kind of you've got the the French appear. The British are moving back from the heights because they're they're planning to move back into the behind effectively the fortifications. Um, and then suddenly everybody kind of has to turn around and it's what mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the unit um, off the top of my head, which is bugging me. But one of the units um, has to retake the heights in effect, which the French are pretty much there. And so you yeah. kind of have this race that the British effectively lose. And so they're, they're having to kind of fire and fight their way uphill. So yeah. the, the attacker kind of suddenly becomes the attack. It's a really odd one. It, it really is. certainly Yeah, it's it is. It's another Albuera in a way, you know. Yeah. The British are beaten. They just don't
1: flaming know yeah. it. Yeah. And in and, and this one, it's, it's really made up on the, on the spur of the moment because Victor, like, like we just said, he, that's the right call. The British are retreating. If I get the high ground, I can pound them as they go with artillery. Now, Graham sees this, makes exactly the counter-right call. Don't let them take that height. We need to hold that if we're going to get into the city safely. That, of course, means we have to run back up the hill and take it. And apparently, this works.
0: (laughs) It's it's not something that you play in a war game, would you? No, no. You know, you you run the numbers and go, no, no, not going to try that. That's no, that's that's not going to work. Yeah. So again, I I kind of have sympathy for Victor.
1: Mm. Um, Yeah. Bad luck, really.
0: I think that's genuinely what I was thinking. In fact, I've got a, a side note in my notes. Is this just a case of he makes the right calls and gets unlucky.
1: Because hmm. there's that thing where you make um, a, a good kind of move. You see it in some battles. Generals will make a, uh, what is, what is a, a safe and probably positive move. That is now an action. Anything now that upsets that is actually quite dangerous, though because that now is in movement and to change that plan to a defensive posture and have every all like martial reserves and things like that is going to be quite quite dodgy to pull off if the enemy is audacious and just goes for you because everybody's doing one thing and now you have to make them do another thing and that actually upsets the French a few times in Spain
0: yeah you're right it definitely does Um, And and we should also talk about again the post-Spanish career Let's not just kind Mm -hmm. of give people the impression that all we care about is is what happens in Spain (laughs) Um, Because it's Victor who plays the key role in getting what was left of Napoleon's army out at Berezina first of all Mm -hmm. Um, And and then there are other things uh, that are worth mentioning in 1813. So he's at Dresden and Leipzig is removed from command at Montereau, but then this is a, a mark of the caliber of the guy He refuses that order because he wants to kind of earn his his reputation back and and then succeeded. You know, he fought bravely alongside his men and was given command of the imperial guard or an element of the imperial guard.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. um, Again, uh, he doesn't do he 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 kind of proves that he's actually a good general when he goes back to fight um, under Napoleon. Um, whether that is just, whether that means that he's another one of those marshals who just does better when he's got uh, a superior officer over him or, and like, therefore the, therefore the mission is simplified or, or not is, is open to interpretation. But yeah, at Berezina, he's the rear guard, not Ney. And he's the, he holds enough for the, the Imperial Guard and what was left of Eugène, um, Eugène uh, and Davout's. Uh, shattered cause to get across and that is all credit to him with that amount of Russians bearing down on them and like you say again nothing but nothing but stellar performances during the later campaigns I think he is the only reason to be honest he he stops fighting is because he gets wounded at Krayon, I think and thereafter it, Thereafter, when he stops fighting, of course, it's very interesting. Is that he, like Sult, very practically, so basically, decides to be a royalist. And maybe it's more, maybe it's more, um, maybe it's more understandable with Victor because he lived longer under the ancient Régime. He, he, maybe he understood that world a little better, so he didn't really mind a more a more constitutionally based royal family. Um, he, he, he didn't join up with Napoleon when he came back in 1815. for certain. He went to Ghent with Louis. Uh, so when they were fighting at Waterloo, he was over at Ghent to to the gunfire with King Louis. And um, he actually, he's, he, he voted for the death of Ney as well.
0: He did, yeah. I mean, this so, strikes me
1: as somebody who is not only brave, but
0: also has the integrity of being a man of their word. Hmm. Um, You you can't really, in my opinion, criticise him for seeing the writing on the wall and deciding, you know what, Napoleon is a spent force come 1814. The the empire has fallen. I need to consider my career options and the Bourbons are the logical choice. So I don't blame him for that switch. Um, Where I have issue with some of these marshals is that, when they think that the, the grass is greener on the other side, when the podium comes back, they ditch their, their oaths, in effect, their honor, I would yeah. argue, and they, they join the podium. And Victor is not one of those. He stays with the
1: Bourbons. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I mean, we, we know that the culture of podium places a great deal of, um, a great deal of uh, uh, credit. Uh, uh, of importance on honor, but only honor to Napoleon, not personal honor. Now, Napoleon has actually signed a document of abdication, a legal document saying, I give up. That technically releases everybody who is not on his personal island in Elba from loyalty to him. So, okay, that actually leaves them free to to be royalists to serve the new King of France, or the old King of France, but the uh, the old regime. Now, when he comes back, that's illegal, technically, even though, of course, he says that because they broke their agreement about the pension for the King of Rome and stuff, so maybe that's a fair point, but whatever. He actually comes back and invades France. That is an illegal act by the terms of the treaty, and anybody who then went back to him is literally committing treason Especially people, unfortunately, like Ney and um, all the other ones who um, some of them didn't get shot. So they were just making an example of Ney, I guess. But yeah, Victor is not one of them. He understands I've given my word to King Louis. It's illegal for me on many levels to go back to Napoleon now. And besides, he I mean, we've, we, we've said it before, this is an absurd plan in 1815. You have to be an idiot to go back to napoleon at this point really um especially after you've seen the chaos of 1814. so what they thought was going to be different now i don't know but victor wasn't one of them and he as a result he was able to live out his life as a peer and a general of uh, of the second second restoration third restoration one of the restorations <laughs> so let's go from somebody who
0: demonstrated Honor and integrity and talk about somebody who whose honour and integrity might be open to question, uh, which is Andre Massena. Wanted to be a sailor originally, but then switched to the army when he found it wasn't uh, for him. Rose to be a sergeant, so another one of those who comes from the bottom, works their way up, was released from the army in in 1789, apologies, but then joined the National Guard two years later within a couple of years was a colonel, voted uh, a colonel we should say, Um, was general of division after the 1795, plays a key role in the Italian campaign, Lodi, Castiglione, Bassano, Caldiero, Arcol, Rivoli, so again is okay he's not with Napoleon right from the beginning but has that association and plays an active role and is trusted by
1: Napoleon. Mm. Yeah this guy um, is a man that Napoleon relied on heavily in, in the first Italian campaign, and would rely on heavily almost until Spain, practically speaking. He is like Napoleon in many ways. Actually, um, people say he might have been the he might have been as good as Napoleon, actually, in his in his prime. Um, they both obviously were. Uh, what you might call ethnic Italians for a start. So there's that similarity. Um, and they, yeah, Messina is just like, like what, like, like Napoleon called him. He was the, what, the darling child of victory or something like that. He could do things with, uh, with in battle. He could do things in campaigns. I mean, he, in, in the precursor to Marengo in 1779, he went up against Zvorov and the Austrians, and that's no mean feat. And because he was able to take out the Austrians and um, Russians at Zurich, I believe, he was able to basically force Suvorov to have to get out of Italy and march back over the Alps. And uh, that's that's why he thought he should have been given the title of Zurich. Um, there was there was a lot of wrangling about uh, who what titles the marshals should get, but Massena was absolutely going to be a marshal in 1804. There was no doubt about it that. This guy, this guy Davout, and Sulan, Lan, top five uh, marshals easily, um, I think, uh, in 1804. And he he's also Massena. Massena is a just a, is a fascinating guy, really, because he he um he understands Napoleon, like few of the others do. He gets the measure of him very quickly, and there's always this kind of there's this kind of uncertainty between Napoleon and Massena, because Massena understands what Napoleon is at, and he has the most he has the most delightful dry sarcasm when it comes to napoleon as well practically anything napoleon says in his presence he has some sort of observation to make and few of the other marshals do that and yeah like sult he is he's much more brilliant than sult but in personality he's he's also an inveterate looter Uh, he gets removed from uh, command in italy because he's such a corrupt he runs such a corrupt government local government um, and uh, he he also uh, is, is, a, is a little bit of a ladies' man as well, um, which is never here you nor know, there, I guess. People bring it up a lot, but if you want to bring a mistress on campaign, it's, it's not my business.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I mean, you say looting in, in Italy, but am I right in thinking that there's a, a similar issue in Naples? And actually, when you think about what happens in Portugal during the 1810 invasion, COVID. Mass looting there. Um, no efforts really made to to quell the looting. Um, no, he's not interested. Of, no, no. Uh, more interested actually in his mistress. Yeah. And, <laughs> and and on the subject of his mistress, there is that brilliant story about a dragoon having to inform him the night before basako of uh, the the news that Wellington has has stopped on Bissaco Ridge. But how do we put this delicately? Messina is busy entertaining his, <laughs> his mistress, um, and as a result, the conversation has to happen through the medium of a bedroom door. <laughs> this is not a man whose mind is in the game.
1: As <laughs> yeah, it were. and I think that is absolutely actually a good way of turning to his performance in uh, sorry, Pan' performance in in Spain. <clears throat> Wink, wink, nudge, uh, nudge. But he's he is not at all committed to this. Um, he first of all, it, it what it, the choice to send Messina to Spain kind of almost shows how little Napoleon thought there was to do there because Messina had no enthusiasm for it. Um, he. He was already the, I think it was the, what was he? Duke of Elchingen or something like that or Prince of Elchingen or something for, for, his, um, for, his, last, for his last kind of um, uh, successful bit of soldiering in, in 1809 uh, against the Austrians uh, where he performed again with his old style. But he really seems to just have had enough by 1810 he really wasn't, I don't think he was really interested in fighting anymore. I think he wanted to retire, to be honest, with a nice title, his mistress, and uh, whatever loot he had collected in Italy. And going to Spain, well, not even Spain, going to Portugal for a start, um, it's just not, not interested in, in doing any more brilliant soldiering. And he thought he could probably play it by numbers, hence, he brought, brought along his mistress and um, his, his, his performance against Wellington in the invasion of, of Portugal to begin with was nothing if not just, well, to use colorful language, half-assed. It was like, he was just not, he was just playing it by numbers. Okay, I'll, I'll go in, I'll take the border fortresses. Okay, I'll just invade now. Oh, they're on top of a ridge. Well, we'll just attack them. We're good, we're, we're the French army. This is what we do, we can take that. And um, then he gets, then Bissaco happens. And well, well, it doesn't go well. And then he kind of clicks into proper Messina mode and he goes, okay, we should, have, we should go gone around by a coin to begin with. Let's turn the position. And obviously he wasted a lot of men doing what didn't need to happen. Um, um, to sending, him to, sending him to the peninsula was weird because he was bad for PR because he looted and let people loot. And he just wasn't, wasn't particularly interested. His individualism and acerbic nature meant he didn't get on well with other commanders. He quarreled with Ney endlessly. And um, so it took him a while to actually start showing he was going to be, you know, that he was still still good. And he, but I, I feel, I feel certainly that he was probably passing his prime just because he was losing interest in soldiering.
0: Yeah, I mean, see, unlike some of the others where I kind of expected to have a slightly harsher opinion and my judgment has kind of, the more I've looked into this, has kind of has softened. It's the reverse with me for Messina. Because he was so good in Mm. Italy, I kind of look at what happens in the the third invasion of Portugal and think this could have been so much better. Yes, Wellington had planned meticulously with the lines of Torres Vedras that we all know about. And yes, once he was in front of the lines of Torres Vedras, there was nothing he could do to to send, particularly having fought Persarca already, to just send men against these positions would have been suicidal, even with the advantage of numbers. But as you say, it does feel like he's playing this kind of steady, methodical, uninspiring almost, kind of this, this game of there are some fortresses, let's take those. Okay, he can't go into Spain until he takes that, uh, sorry, into Portugal until he takes those fortresses. But beyond that, he takes Almeida much sooner because of the explosion of the magazine there. You just, I can't help but feel there was potentially scope for something more dynamic and more intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly at Bissarco, where the Wellington's left was just sort of, in the air, once you come down off of Basaka Ridge. Mm-hmm. There's a road. You, you just, you know, basic yeah. reconnaissance, help flank the position, perhaps yeah. even pin Wellington with a frontal assault while sending another force on a night march. And yes, I can be an archer
1: general and kind of thinking with the benefit of time. Well, he did it. He did that's why he did it for one test on Onyoro. Precisely. He pinned him in the front and tried to hook around the flank. So he knew exactly what to do against a good defender. Um, but he just didn't do it at Bissarco. And actually, the, the case to be made against Messenia in 1810 uh, is that he just didn't care about reconnaissance once he got into Portugal, which, to be honest, is not terrain is not actually that different from northern Italy and the campaigns he was doing around there. So he should have been well able to navigate through valleys and mountains and do 10, 10 bad, like, dodgy positions. But um, uh, but reconnaissance—it's like he didn't bother to scout the Basaco position to see if he could turn it. He, then once he had turned it, he didn't bother to scout ahead to see if there was it to find Torres address, Because there's that bit where he he comes up in front of it, and then is very—he very, sort of he considers the position. He takes a day and he kind of reconnoitres it personally. And there's a funny bit where there's a British artillery a gunner fires a shot at him and he just sort of doffs his hat and turns around and then he addresses some questions to loyal uh, well so well i suppose traitorous portuguese officers and goes why didn't you tell me this was here and he says well we, they say we didn't know it was here and then sort of shamefacedly go well you know it must have must have must have been working for a really long time though, don't you think and he goes the devil wellington did not make the mountains and yeah, that's yeah, he did. That is what I said. Th- that's why I think he wasn't really caring because he didn't care to look in front of him when he, was, when he was fighting Wellington in 1810. And uh, yeah, he um, he was he was, was like he's 52, he's getting into middle age, and he's, he's not bothered, he's not bothered, and Unt- until he loses so badly in 1810, he kind of his pride is stung and he realizes, okay, I have a fight on my hands now. I actually have to get myself out of this hole. And in 1811, he puts up a better show. But while
0: sitting before the lines of Torres Vedras is
1: not overly concerned
0: about, as, as you said earlier, kind of PR about relations with the Portuguese and in very graphic accounts of the British advance afterwards, we see soldiers from all ranks turning around and describing horrific barbarism that Mm. they see the Portuguese have been subjected to.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. It's another example, it could be another example of Bissena's disinterest in stopping looting and and things like that, and really his his general disinterest in fighting a, a... a kind of a proper campaign a properly ordered campaign his army is in a pretty bad state except for Ney who does a splendid job with the rear guard um uh, who basically just decides to just i'm just going to go on go on my own now um you, you know you just you just get get the heck out of Portugal leave me to my own devices and um Messina is mostly interested in getting out of Portugal and rallying the army outside of it. And whatever they do on the way is not his business, I think. I think that's probably at the heart of it. I'm not sure he, and to be honest, I think it was partially his cold-blooded, possibly instinct for, like Napoleon's little cold-blooded instinct for war, which was if you can do enough damage, it kind of slows the enemy down. So, uh, you know, woe to the civilians really, this is war kind of thing. Uh, possibly that, but there's no doubt about it. His, his inability or disinterest in trying to control uh, the deprivations is a black mark against him. Even though he was in most other cases, he, uh, in some cases he could be quite uh, intelligent when it came to trying to win hearts and minds and stuff. But sometimes it just uh, priorities seemed to overweigh one. Some priorities were greater to him than others. And at that moment, getting out of Portugal was the priority he didn't care about uh, how they got out, I guess.
0: And then we come to what is in effect the, the final act of his career, which is Fiorente Don Euro, which mm. is, as, as you said earlier, much more imaginative and on two occasions comes very close to achieving what he sent out to do. But this is Wellington on ground of his choosing. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yes, uh, a a position which we can rightly criticize Wellington for because you've got the the river, not to his back, but uh, if the allied army had broken, trying to get uh, men, back across that river would have been an absolute nightmare. Mm -hmm. There's there's no two ways about that. Um, But this is, this is much more like it, if if you Mm -hmm. will, you know, nearly achieves the breakthrough through the village, takes it right up to the churchyard. You've got the vicious fighting happening amongst the headstones, um, ultimately pushed back, but only after reserves are sent in. Um, And then there's the whole business of what happens on the right flank, which is incredible. Wellington makes a blunder. And yes. overextends his right. And, you know, talk about a man on the ball, sees it and goes, right, I'm going to move in and just roll up the, the uh, yeah. allied right flank. And by God, did he nearly succeed. <laughs> he you know? really
1: did, nearly, actually. It's fascinating yeah. that actually the only thing that went wrong was that was, was sort of that he let it get away from him that he, that the attack went in, it went well, but he seemed to like suddenly draw focus in on the village and then sort of forgot about the left flank, um, which allowed, I guess, Waddington to respond the way he did, which was to refuse the entire right center. Um, but yeah, that that, as one officer said, they completely turned Weddington's Wellington's right flank. And they were within an ace of um, destroying the was it seventh, the fourth division. Um, Don't both, sorry, no, it's the light who goes into... Yeah, they go to rescue, rescue one of the others. I think it's the seventh uh, that's out there. Yeah. And you, know, they come very close to completely rolling up the flank. Um, like you say, this is this is why you just do not leave an open flank in front of Marshal Massena, because he, when he's on the ball, he'll find it and he'll make you pay for not anchoring it. And if he had paid more attention, personal attention, I don't think he actually went out onto the left, his left flank, um, to control it himself, or or even reinforced it after the first uh, successes to try and. Uh, even pinned down the light division when it came out to help them. Uh, maybe, maybe Weddington would have had to actually got the heck out of there. And then, as you say, had his back against a river and who knows what might have happened, to be honest, but he let it get away from him. He let Weddington regain some tempo. Uh, it let it, he allowed Weddington to get his divisions back. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was a very dodgy situation, and Wellington just just held on um, because Massena intuitively saw he is committing everything to an, to his centre. I've actually got him convinced. I want that that I want to crush his centre, so I'll do it, I'll do an attack on the left. I wonder is he actually thinking this is just going to be a massive demonstration and I'm going to punch through the center? Or does he actually want to break Waddington's right? Because the way he acts is more as if he wants Waddington to weaken his center so he can get through the middle.
0: Yeah that's, that's a good argument. I mean there, there is so much of a fixation around the village and the fighting around the village. But yeah it, I don't know is the honest answer but it's a really interesting yeah, I question <laughs> um yeah I, i've never really kind of thought about it that way but it is i mean he's got to do one or the other hasn't he mm-hmm. i mean it kind of if you if you attack on the left either you're going to roll up um wellington's right flank the the french left are going to to sweep in
1: or the center is going to have to be weakened in order to stabilize the the allied flank um mm-hmm. so actually what... again like a lot of what we've just been saying about the other marshals. This is a good plan because it gives him many options. It just he doesn't take advantage of the option that happens of the advantage that he is, he gains on the on Wellington's right, on, a, on his left. It seems pointless. And again, I think we should also point out that what uh, Peter Young said about um, said about Massena, and even he's also he also includes Marmont on in this, that Marmont never pressed a battle. Beyond the logical point. So when the attacks failed, he stopped fighting. This is something Napoleon would fail to do at Waterloo.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, um, and and as you say, is also true of Marmont, uh, who, funnily enough, supersedes Massena um, a few days a few days later. Uh, yes, yeah, so you don't have. A situation where the French army fights itself to its own destruction. Um, so, yeah, a, a better battle at Fuenté on on mm-hmm. many levels. Um, but I I just I, I expected more from the guy and, and 1810 yeah. and the history of plunder. It just sort of doesn't sit particularly mm-hmm. well with me.
1: Um, gifted though he no, was. No, no, it's a, yes, it's a it it doesn't. It just it just screams that he didn't want the job <laughs> and didn't mm. want to have to work this hard <laughs> to, to do it.
0: Let's talk about uh, one more before we wrap this, this part up. We'll talk about uh, others in, okay. in the second section, which is somebody we've talked about a fair amount already, Michel Ney, the Prince of mm. Moskva. Napoleon himself called him the bravest of the brave, his bravery was beyond question. At whatever point you want to look at his career, he was in the thick of the fighting and was incredible at at that craft. And we've mentioned about him being given rearguards during the withdrawal, particularly uh, from Portugal. He's also in the rearguard in the withdrawal from Russia, arguably uh, has PTSD, post-Russia, um, is a cavalryman by by his nature. Um, Hussar's in 1787, I believe it is, and then rises up yeah, through the yeah, ranks. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a lot of the, the big actions. Um, How Linden springs to mind, Jaina, Eilau, mm-hmm. Friedland. Mm-hmm. He's at Bissarco, does very well at Bissarco. Um, but then, of course, things go quite badly wrong after Russia, in my opinion. Um, the mm. big ones there being Katchabra, Waterloo, an absolute mess. So, mm. I mean, if I was going to summarize Ney in a single phrase, it would be incredibly brave, but not a great tactical mind.
1: Yeah, he's a funny one, Ney. He's like he's like Napoleon's, he's like one of Napoleon's favorite tools. Like you say, he's, he's in almost all of the major battles. Um, uh, he's he's quite brilliant when he has a simple goal to achieve, um, but usually loses, gets lost in, in minutiae uh, if he's left to his own devices. Therefore in Portugal he, he was given the job protect the rear of Mussena's army and he did that very well against the light division. And as has been pointed out on Twitter recently, he it can be argued that at the combat of Radina he actually got the better of Wellington um, in a defensive battle where he made Wellington think he was the entire French army. And, uh, but he did, the reason that I guess Ney won't take very long to talk about is because he doesn't actually command in Spain. Once, once that campaign is over, he actually goes back to Central Europe and obviously 1812, where he becomes the, the in quotes, bravest to the brave. Um, it's interesting to note that that is very much a byproduct of his own mistakes uh, and Napoleon's misjudgments uh, where uh, Davout's corps um, cuts Ney off and leaves him stranded in a Russian city, and then all of the French concentrated a place called Krasny. Um, there's a battle there, Napoleon's afraid of being cut off, and he marches away, allowing the Russians under General Miloradovich to cut the road to Krasny uh, before Ney can get to Napoleon. He is now cut off, and this is the destruction of Ney's corps. He tries to fight his way through. He loses ridiculous amounts of men. The entire corps just goes to pieces. But he personally manages to get like four four or five hundred men out of, of the wreckage that he has created and Napoleon has left him with. And that's why he's called the bravest of the brave because of three days of trying to get the heck out away from the Cossacks in 1812. Um, then at Cachabra, as you say, because his Spanish career is, is quite limited, but he was there and he was a marshal when he was, when he was in it. And he did creditably well in Spain. I'm not sure if he, would have, if he had commanded in Spain, he would have done any better than the others. he fought well at Cachabra, I guess, the real problem with Cattabra is the day after where he just sits there and does nothing and lets Wellington just walk away. That's inexplicable. At Cattabra, you can argue certain things were uh, out of his control. but Yeah, I mean, Cattabra,
0: he's learned. He hasn't done what Napoleon is said to have done on the morning of the Battle of Waterloo itself and just dismissed Wellington, perhaps because he's... He's been at Osarco. He knows that fighting Wellington on ground of his choosing is, is dangerous. He's learnt that lesson. Napoleon, perhaps not having been there, kind of thinks, ah, it's, it's, it's this guy with his overrated reputation. But it's, a, it's one of those fascinating moments where, for all that um, Wellington is supposed to have said of Napoleon, that his presence is worth, what, 40,000 men?
1: Yeah, something Actually, like
0: that. Actually, Wellington's reputation
1: Mm. Equated
0: to an entire army That wasn't even in <laughs> <Yeah>. the field <laughs> The crossroads was pretty much undefended Had mm. he moved in With the force that he had available to him He could have rolled that position up in no time at all oh, yeah. and Then yeah. then the Prussians are, are in even greater trouble Wellington is trying to concentrate his force On a place that is occupied yeah. know, How How is all of that Going to work out um, So I I think he does the right thing at Cacherebard, just at the wrong moment. I think um, so
1: too. Yeah, I mean, he, he 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 shows up the day before. He doesn't actually know where the rest of his is his wing of the army is. His two corps are, and like you say, he could have been audacious, like he would have probably have been in the old days, like charging off at Jena and just starting the battle without Napoleon. But here, he decides to be solid. He says. I am going to mass my, I'm going to concentrate my forces. That is the, that's, that's what the book says to do. And I'm going to wait until I have Derlon and I have Ray uh, And uh, I think it was Ray's call. Um, and then I'm going to attack, you know, I'm just going to mass as many men as I can. And then I'm going to attack and I'll be able to do it properly. And I'll take it by the evening and that'll be fine. Unfortunately, it's not, like you say, it's, it's a solid call. It's a good command call. Um, but it just turns out to be the wrong one in that, in that situation. And obviously he did well, like we said, he did well in Portugal, uh, but as far as his Spanish and Portuguese um, fighting goes, that's, that's what it is at. And because of that, like you say, he knew about Wellington. And therefore he thought he was doing the right thing to make sure he had irresistible force to be able to maximize his chances. And then, of course, at Waterloo, who knows what happened to Waterloo, the poor guy. I feel so so sorry for Ney at Waterloo. He's basically left to command the battle himself. Um,
0: Is he though? Some people suggest that actually Napoleon suggests that Ney is given the left flank um, in order for Napoleon to kind of cover his own back because a lot of people kind of talk about Napoleon and his style and say, look, realistically, would he have just said here there you go. Take all of the cavalry, charge it off into, <laughs> into the Allied lines without doing any prior reconnaissance. That's absolutely fine. And and then continue to reinforce that failure on a battlefield that is incredibly condensed. And so plenty would say, yes, but this is Napoleon we're talking about. Would he really have, have allowed all of that to happen?
1: Um, mm. I mean, boy, it's, should the... it's baffling. It's baffling, isn't it? It's it's. It makes no sense. Why? How is Napoleon, who is nothing but a, a a great attacker, who is how is he allowing this to happen? This these mass cavalry charges. He can see them happening. Why is it not stopped? <laughs> yeah, it, and and equally, I would blame Ney for
0: reinforcing.
1: faith. Yes, yes. In, in I that mean, what, that's absolutely that's absolutely true. I often defend Ney uh, because he's, because Napoleon is in overall command. But at the same time, that is absolutely valid. What on earth are you thinking you're achieving here? It's like, it's like he can sense that he's actually putting a great deal of pressure on the centre of Wellington's line. And he seems to get the impression that he's feeling that just because he's getting those small percentages of success, i.e. inflicting great casualties and keeping Wellington there, that he should continue doing this in the hopes that he can get a break somewhere. I don't know. Um, charging squares. Everybody, yeah, just, everybody knows.
0: The yeah. schoolboys almost kind of learn this. At them. Yeah. They don't quite <laughs> learn this at school because we don't teach them think, of course. But <laughs> having said that, I actually did a lesson once with um, my students in the summer where we took them outside and i took them through some basics of napoleonic in infantry drill and they learned very quickly that if you face cavalry you must form square so yep. so in a sense you know even even school kids know it's it's,
1: yeah, it's not going I, to end well is it so yeah it leaves it on um, it leaves the question open is it just he lost his is it just that, like the, his his mental state allowed him to get so tunnel vision that he thought this was working or, I mean, is that, that could be the only explanation for such egregious waste of waste of men. I mean, he um, does especially when reinforcements, in fairness. He does, it. he does. And the police That's does the a point conspire. I was going to make. Yeah, that was, that was the point I was going to make, though. He makes that request once he takes the You don't need cavalry to take liaison. And he takes it with infantry. So once he takes that, he actually does, he actually begins putting pressure on properly. And he is forcing Wellington's centre to withdraw back from the building. He is building up a pocket that can be used as a launching pad. The cavalry, that's, is that to do, does that have anything to do with the mass cavalry attacks?
0: It's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, mm. if, if he's in command of that wing, okay, he's responsible for maintaining the pressure on the haissant, which was certainly... I suppose you can argue one way or the other on um, whether that was the right call had the KGL received the ammunition that they needed. That was as much of a folly as the the absolute mess that was Hugemor. Um oh. and so, in a sense, you could say, well, look, there is it's, it's a question of luck there, just as the French were very nearly lucky at Hugomor in, in being able to get round the back and get in the, the gate at the rear. Um yeah, it's, it's not his finest hour, is it? Obviously, by any means. No. But I I mean, if we think about Bissarco just for a moment, I don't think he really had a chance at Bissarco. Um, I mean, no, he's facing the, the light division. Bob <laughs> Crawford in command.
1: They're lying down. They're just waiting for the yeah, French it's all come. It's all prepared. There's literally exactly. almost nothing to do. You know, the manoeuvre is stand up, fire, charge, and... And that—that's all they need to do. Whereas the French have to climb up a hill on their hands and knees under under skirmishing fire and artillery fire. Get up in a column. Can't deploy up. There's not enough room. It's, yeah, it's 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 not his fault that no. he gets that sent one goes to, do to this job. Way. Yeah.
0: Um, I, okay, you choose the right man for the job because Ney, he's nay's a great commander. He's an attacker. Um, but I mean soccer Ridge. It's like this, but yeah. the people who are who are watching, who are listening, won't be able to see uh, Bissaka, It's almost a vertical climb. You know, yes. it's not a position
1: that I, you assault. I, I wasn't joking. They literally, at points, had to climb up there on their hands and knees. Uh, it's uh, like using their hands to pull themselves up because it is actually so steep, and that's going to do terrible things to cohesion and um, then you're met with canister fire at the top because they're right on top of them as soon as they get to the flat uh, of the plateau of the ridge, the, r- the top of the ridge. And it's not his fault, he did all he could do. There's nothing else you could do. You can't take a position like that. Um, I don't know how you take it. I guess you would need massive artillery support pounding that top of that ridge to stop the British from getting forward on it or something, I don't know, or have so many columns going up it that they managed to find a hole in the line somewhere, but it's like, yeah, it's not, Messina just said, we're the French, we can beat them, go take the hill, and he tried. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he certainly did, uh, and if we now switch back to, to, to Waterloo and a very poor piece of planning, apologies to, to listeners. And and think about the aftermath. I mean, he made a rod for his own back by saying that he was going to bring Napoleon back in an iron uh, cage, yes, and then yes. and then failing to do that. Um, it, he was an impetuous guy, wasn't he? Um, he was. was those kind of grand gestures.
1: He was. He, um, he was, Again, loyalty here. He Napoleon chose his man well. This guy was obviously Napoleon's man. Um, even if he thought it was a lost cause. And there's every indication to think that he probably thought it was a lost cause, but he, he actually, he, 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 actually switched. No, I mean, what, I mean, after Waterloo, he is the, he, he is the guy who leads the revolt of the marshals. It's him who puts, who like puts Napoleon's arm behind his back and says that the army will follow its generals, abdicate. We have lost. And then comes back to him in 1815, and like we said with Victor, this is a poor choice, except out of except out of some sense of loyalty to the person of Napoleon, because he feels guilty. I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, it's, it's um, bizarre, but he's executed for it ultimately. Yes, um, because legally, it's legally it is treason.
0: Yeah,
1: it's um, that's why, and he was made an example of because he's nay. An and because he was so. Was so egregiously traitorous to Louis uh, that he actually went and turned his coat. He did the old-fashioned thing where he went on a mission for, the gener- for his king and he didn't just ride off in the middle of the night from Paris. He actually took troops to Napoleon <laughs> so and helped him overthrow King Louis. So this is, this is, this is, this is, that was the sad end of, of a very brave and loyal man
0: it certainly is and and it's a sad note on which to end this episode but uh for those of you who've enjoyed this do not worry we are going to continue in a few days time i mean we're actually going to continue in in two minutes time but you know you're you're going to have to wait um a a few (laughs) days to to enjoy that one where we will be looking at marmont jordan and Suchet. but in the meantime i'm zach white this has been uh, Bonnie's Boys in Spain from the Napoleonist featuring the brilliant Josh Proven. Thanks very much. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>